Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Etienne Stott, who's been a guest here before. And before we did the, the Spodek method with him, the AIM method, and I've been in touch with him and he does a lot with Extinction Rebellion in England. I asked him to describe the mission, the strategy, what attracted him to Extinction Rebellion. You've been arrested with them. You've done a lot of stuff with them. And then you just said, why don't we record this? So uh, now we're recording and it's kind of impromptu. And so you, these are not prepared. This is you sharing off the top of your head of, and, and from your heart. Can you share what you've done with them and, and what drew you to them? Okay, yeah. So I'll probably start almost at the beginning, but I'll answer the question. So I, I am a member of Extinction Rebellion and, and they believe, uh, they advocate or we use uh, a method called nonviolent direct action or peaceful civil disobedience. So sometimes there's probably some particular differences between those things that you could look in books, but I call it nonviolent direct action or peaceful civil disobedience. Sometimes we also call it starting to be called peaceful resistance, civil resistance. That's a slightly different thing. And I might come to that if I remember at the time. So I've been, yeah, I've been arrested 10 times and I've been convicted twice of um, minor public order offences, I would describe them as. So basically I've been arrested um, for um, protesting peacefully, um, most commonly sitting uh, in a road and refusing to move when the police ask you to move on. That's kind of one of the main methods. And I'll probably come to that. I'll, I'll write down a little list of things that I'll try and cover. Um, so I'll write methods as well. So I've been arrested and I've been co- convicted twice, but <clears throat> well, I'll explain you know, the, the consequences of those things. And we're talking about the UK here. And I did explain to you, Josh, you know, that Extinction Rebellion is kind of all around the world, every country, every group, in fact, every single rebel has autonomy. Um, and so there's probably quite a variation in different things, but the, I suppose the kind of source code of Extinction Rebellion is probably very similar around all the different countries. Um, and Extinction Rebellion began in the UK. Um, so the, the, you know, the, the, the Extinction Rebellion that we have here although maybe was the first, perhaps isn't the best, um, but it certainly has something said because it was, you know, the first one of its kind, um, but maybe other groups have changed it, improved it, who knows? Um, so it's worth me saying it's kind of UK context specific as well. Um, so yeah, where do we begin? So for me, um, Extinction Rebellion gives the uh, offers what seems to me a very credible, powerful um, set of ideas and tools for addressing or feeling like you've got some way to be powerful in this climate and ecological emergency. So it's a kind of, I suppose I use the analogy in my sporting ways, you know, when you've got a goal, you search around for the most effective tools to um, set about progressing you towards those goals. And um, Extinction Rebellion to me seems to me to make sense the, as the most effective method that we can choose uh, at this time, you know, in very late in the day of this climate and ecological emergency with the goal of, you know, sustaining human civilization, in fact, sustaining kind of life on earth, um, you know, in some vaguely decent form compared to the direction that we're headed and the tools that I think seem to be most effective or or seem to me to have the best chance for having an effect 
is extinction rebellion um <clears throat> is to rebel um against our governments so i'm going to come back to that as well so i'm going to start off first of all so saying like so extinction rebellion has in the uk has three demands and one um immediate demand which is slightly different so the three demands broadly uh, are that we have to tell the truth number one number two is to act now uh, and number three is to go beyond po- beyond politics or upgrade democracy as they may have slightly different ways of being written as well in this country even now than, than what i've just said but the first thing is to really to recognize the truth um and i think this is a really important part of it it tells the truth and it says you know we're in this dire state of emergency we have left it far too late um you know our planet is dying um the threat is very serious um our um our understanding as well so this is one of the very empowering things about extinction rebellion is that it's not we're not having to defend the science we're actually ask you know we're referencing the you know the science as it stands from the ipcc and other credible you know scientists such as you know peter kalmus in the in the us and other climate scientists who are peer reviewed respected voices who have not really managed to have their voices heard up until this point I guess we also are a little bit <clears throat> well. We're open, certainly, in understanding of the the the, the limitations of the IPCC process. That is very politicised, and certainly the reports that come out of the IPCC, you know, the ones that come to the to the to the uh, to the policymakers are normally politically agreed. But the actual science behind it is absolutely rock solid. Reviews of peer reviewed science. So that's one of the things about being a rebel. Um, is that you don't have to defend the science. You know, the science, the, the truth is there. It's it's clear. It's unequivocal. It's caused by human beings, and the truth is that we need to act. <clears throat> we need to act as if the truth is real. Excuse me. I'm just going to clear my throat. There we go. Um, so the, tell tell the truth is the first demand, and tell the truth is you know asking our government to tell the truth and asking also our media to tell the truth. Um, because the media, by and large, doesn't tell the truth about how serious this is, and there is a kind of silence. Uh, and also, um, in this country, especially in the in the U- in the UK, our media, press, and media is kind of led by our printed press, which is run by a very small number, three or four um, billionaire you know, non-doms, they're called people who don't actually live in this country, whose financial interests are very opaque, but they're hugely, uh, hugely rich, influential in our politics. And they're either outright climate deniers like Rupert Murdoch, or they are um, involved in heavily in the fossil fuel industry like the Koch brothers. So our media is all, we're also demanding media needs to tell the truth and to explain to people every day, you know, what's going on. Because at the moment, our media is kind of full of you know, stories about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, rather than people, you know, literally dying right now in the global south and people having all sorts of troubles all around the world. So um, telling the truth is that, but also telling the truth to ourselves is a real important part of being a rebel. We have to, and the truth, we've talked about this, I think you and I, Josh, you know, that the truth is very hard for us to grasp. You know, the fact that the evidence says, you know, and this is Antonio Guterres saying, we are, you know, we're closing the door on a livable future for our civilization. To understand that all that we're looking outside now, we're perhaps living through, you know, some of the best, maybe the final, you know, years, maybe decades of 
of this project that we're in right now and and telling the truth is very very hard to not deny to not deny that to not shy away from that to actually treat it as if it's real is incredibly difficult it's very scary for some people it creates quite a lot of grief and sadness uh, i don't mind admitting you know i i don't see the future for myself um being the one i imagined and that makes me sad i had a lot of different ideas about what i wanted to do and those things don't work you know they're going to be horrible in fact <clears throat> if we don't change so telling the truth to ourselves is really hard um so that's the first demand the second demand is to act now and that is you know this urgency that we feel um we we are really now in the situation where the decisions we're making are in the next few years will set our civilization towards a path towards survival or towards its you know destruction broadly you know i think to the, to reference you know if we go past you know the, these uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees many people argue 1.5 is probably going to happen is very very dangerous going past 2 degrees is extremely dangerous the pledges made up so far on cop 26 take us to 3.2 degrees once we pass these tipping points we're going to really struggle to get a hold of this you know we're going to go we're going to do things that we cannot get out of you know the, the rainforest die the um the, the 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 ice caps melt you can't get those back without something you know very very you know well they just can't they can't they can't go back in any sort of meaningful time scale so acting now is really important it's this urgency <clears throat> and again <clears throat> excuse me we're asking our governments to act with this urgency but we're also acting ourselves you know to really see this as it this isn't like a long-term thing this is a problem that we need to address now this is everything about it is saying we need to we need to act now. We need to drop what we're doing now. You know, let go. Take our not. You know, I'm I'm basically stopped doing almost all the paid work that I do because you know there's no point in doing that because we need to act now. We need to do this right immediately. We need to push everything we can into this. Otherwise, further down the line, this you know those things that we're working towards will be washed away by by these horrendous you know changes that are coming. So act now is really, really important. The third demand is, is around the, the idea that our democracy in this country and you know, arguably in the US and many of the so-called democracies that we see around the world is incapable of addressing this. It's had 30 years, perhaps more, when it's known about this stuff. And you would perhaps say it's ineptitude. Some people would say it's corruption. Some would say, you know, uh, you know that oppositional politics that we have republicans and democrats labor and conservative you know they're bashing each other over the aisles every day um, it doesn't work because we need to collaborate in this situation you know it may be that one party has got the right idea and the other party has to just say actually that is the right idea you, you know just saying black is white and white is black and disagreeing is, is just really not sensible also this idea of representation that we have that we have representatives representing us. Uh, I think that's really clear that the people representing us find it very difficult to represent us in a kind of complicated world. Um, and very often these kind of first past the post democratic systems, they leave many, many people without a voice, you know, and they leave many people with no real way of, you know, having what they're, you know, having their concerns met. And thirdly, you know, you get, like our representatives are very often drawn from 
groups that are not representative of our society um you know elites in this country especially most of our you know most of our mps are educated in in what's called public schools which are actually private schools where you have to pay and you know a very exclusive universities and they're prepared you know for leadership positions in all various areas from a very young age and you know they don't represent they're not connected very often with what you know ordinary people live like so the third demand is to upgrade democracy to what we we are asking or demanding is called a citizens assembly a citizens assembly is a a random selection a random cross section where it's a random selection of people to form a, a cross section of uh, our society and you put them in a room and we use what's called deliberative democracy where you basically have experts in their fields and they they kind of um give the input they say look guys this is the problem you know these are the possible solutions and then people work together to come up with ways you know to mesh these into a plan that will work and because they're ordinary people they're not needing to get re-elected in in four years or five years or three years they're not corrupted by vested interests of course everyone brings in their interests of course into that room but the theory would be that everybody being together um, and working together and recognizing their responsibilities very similarly in a jury everybody in the jury has got their own perspectives but when they're coming together to do this very important thing this you know they can they can often go beyond their usual thinking to to come to a sensible solution in that case so citizens assemblies are what I would describe as our solution in inverted commas. And that's another very empowering thing about the design of Extinction Rebellion. And it has been designed very carefully. You can tell people have put a lot of thought into it. The design is that we've got this, this is our solution. And it isn't a solution in terms of, oh, you know, because if you have a solution, you have to defend it in, you know, if you say, oh, well, what about nuclear power? Does Extinction Rebellion want nuclear power? Do we want onshore? What about the impact of wind turbines? How about, you know, do we need to like do X, Y, and Z? All of a sudden, every single person has to become like a policy expert and an expert on all these details. And what is really empowering is to say, actually, no, we're asking our solution is to put this in the hands of ordinary people. We will trust them to kind of navigate and create a path out of here. So to me, that combination of telling the truth, which is like, we've got the science. You don't, I don't have to be a climate expert. I know quite a bit about the science because sometimes I've asked to talk about it. But I like, just listen to the, to the IPCC, listen to the United Nations. And what's my solution? I, you know, we have to get ordinary people on board in this citizens assembly and they will decide whether or not it's sensible to have nuclear energy. And, you know, I've got my own opinions of nuclear energy, for example, but <clears throat> I'm not having to defend them because actually we're defending this, this idea is to get ordinary people, which I think is a very compelling idea to kind of navigate us out of this mess. So there are three demands, which are very simple. And the idea, I suppose, one of the things that's really important just to kind of come back a step again, is that Extinction Rebellion is kind of based on the idea uh, that we need systemic changes to get out of this you know, to address this climate and ecological emergency. We've had 30 years where, you know, we've been somewhat, it's the word, responsibilized. We've been made to feel responsible for this as ourselves, as consumers. And, you know, it's about recycling and about, um, you know, using, buying an electric car or um, using public transport, flying less or not flying. And all these things are really important um, 
things that each of us can do. But very often what's missing there is that the fact that while we're all, you know, kind of spinning our wheels, trying to do all those things and feeling guilty if we can't, because most people actually, you know, can't necessarily hold themselves and, and practically live to these kind of incredible ideals of amazing people, you know, trying their best sometimes like what you're doing, you know, it's very, very difficult. If you understand, though, that actually while our governments allow, you know, fossil fuel industry to continue, you know, their their expansion, these companies are going to find a way of selling their energy. They're going to find a way of selling their products that needs to be consumed by us. So whilst if you're only ever looking at the demand side, you're going to miss out on the fact that this is supply. You know, we need we need to restrict and change the way that supply is happening because it's, you know, relentless supply of fossil fuels is going to kill us. So this is very, again, very empowering. Extinction Rebellion has this kind of idea of no blaming and shaming, which is trying to release people of this guilt, which disempowers people. Oh, you know, I had to had to throw something away today or I had to use my car the other day because I couldn't get the train. It was too expensive and it arrived too late or whatever. You know, it's actually saying, no, what we really need is a public transport system that's fit for purpose. What we really need is a recycling system. What we really need is a you know, circular economy where we don't actually have to do that much recycling. What we really need is renewable energy that is cheap and that we can get hold of easily. Um, and we need insulation on our homes so our homes don't use so much energy, blah, blah, blah. Do you see what I mean? So it's this systemic uh, kind of perspective that is very strong. And also then, of course, as soon as you look into the systemic you know, you're realizing that this is a problem at the, you know, at this highest level is our governments. They choose not to intervene. We are really got this kind of very strong orientation in the US and the UK and probably other countries towards what some people call neoliberal free market economics, which is a very extreme form of, of capitalism. And this method is basically based on the extraction and re- of resources and perpetual growth. And that is also unsustainable. We know currently our economic model relies on 3% growth every year happening. And if we don't, we have a recession and people suffering massively. It's really, really bad. So our economic system is impossible to sustain on, on, on a finite planet that we have. We're in this closed system, effectively. Our Earth is a closed system. It only has energy coming in from the outside, from the sun. Everything else has to be figured out inside that bubble. And so having infinite growth, 3% growth compounded every year on a finite planet is impossible to sustain. So this economic model really needs needs revisiting and thinking about. And our governments are massively um, invested in this idea of yeah, free market, free market solutions. And in fact, those those things cannot be trusted. To, to navigate us out of this mess there, what's got us into this mess, this extractivist mindset. And it's basically exploiting people all around the world, people who don't look like us in the global South, making their lives miserable, take, destroying their land for the sake of keeping our economy ticking over the way it does. So you start very quickly when you start to look at the systemic causes of things, you start to see you know, this injustice and you start to think about climate justice um, and social justice starts to be entwined. They all start to kind of come together a little bit. Um, so for me, I'm going to stop. So now I've been talking for quite a long time now. You might want to ask me a question. <laughs> but to me, Existential Rebellion is just really simple idea. It's got these three demands. It's saying, you know, this. And, and so, yeah, I'll have to say one more thing. It's saying, you know, we've got this problem this is a very serious problem now what do we do about it 
And in our case, we're saying that nonviolent civil disobedience is, is a way that has been used in the past to create massive changes and quite rapidly. Sometimes they've taken longer, sometimes they've taken short, but big changes are required. And peaceful disobedience methods were used by Martin Luther King, Gandhi, you know, and the suffragettes in the UK to get to, you know, to make changes towards justice, towards something that's very, very sensible for most people. But at the time that it was happening, there, you know, there wasn't space in the public kind of, you know, space to, to discuss these things. They didn't, they did, they seem to be, you know, frowned upon or they weren't really accepted. But then all of a sudden, after pushing it, it turned out that actually many people did accept these ideas. They just hadn't been felt comfortable to voice them in public. But actually, once it comes out, people are actually, yeah, these things are sensible. And in this case, yeah, we need to save our planet. Lots of people are probably a bit scared because they feel like they might get shouted down or they might not know enough about it or they might be hypocritical because they still have a car or whatever. But actually, you know, once they sit down and think about, you know, get get kind of acquainted with this idea that it's a systemic issue, then you feel like you can do something about it. It's a political choice that we're that's being made. And so then it becomes about putting pressure on the governments to do its job and to pull those levers. And at the moment, it doesn't seem to want to do that because it's got this big connection with the market will sort it all out. But actually, our governments do have the power. We saw that during COVID. They have huge influence on our lives. They can change industries overnight, literally overnight, if they want to. And we need that to happen. But we, what we don't actually trust is governments do that properly, which is why we need uh, you know, an ordinary group of ordinary citizens to come up with a plan that our government then enacts. So to me, it's a simple, powerful and compelling recipe that when you're just looking at this on TV, thinking, oh, my God, this is horrendous. What can I do? I'm feeling really bad. Is actually this is a this is our best bet. You know, just like in sports, there was no guarantee that, you know, the training you're going to do is going to lead you to success. But you think, actually, this is, seems to be the best training that I can think of just now to, to do and towards my goal. So that's why I've chosen it. So. I'll probably talk a bit about the methods and stuff a little bit because there's some important things, but if you've got any questions, Josh, I'll, I'll answer them now as well if I can. If there's anything, I'm sure I've been talking ages. <laughs> I thank everyone who's listening for listening to me as well. Well, actually, you're saying you're talking ages as if that was a bad thing, but just the virtue of how long you've spoken and in what depth and with what clarity uh, says a lot about how much you know about it. This is not like a casual decision. You're not acting out of desperation uh, you're not doing. You're not doing what what you're told to do. Uh, you're you're acting on full consideration of full knowledge, and uh, you've thought these things through a lot. So it is desperate, though. To be fair, you know, I think it is desperation because if we could afford just to carry on, you know, lobbying politically and writing petitions, perhaps we we'd be okay. But we've run out of time for that. Those things haven't worked. So now it is desperate. This is about actually, you know, kind of getting out there and taking responsibility for our future directly and taking that power. So there is some sense of desperation there in terms of like, you know, what do we have to do? It's come to this now that we have to get out there. Ordinary people, so-called respectable, responsible citizens are now feeling compelled to stand up and say, actually, no more. I'm not letting this happen because this is, this is anti-democratic. It's completely wrong, you know? When you first started, you said at the beginning, it sounded like you were looking for places that you could, like, it was the only, I think you said it was the only place that was, did you look at alternatives with other organizations? I mean, there are, there's, in the US, there's 350.org, which I presume is also in the UK. There's 
Greenpeace and lots of other organizations. Um, how did you, did you compare and contrast or did this one resonate so well that you didn't have to? I mean, it popped out, Extinction Rebellion popped out at a time when I was really, you know, looking at really realizing the sense of magnitude of what we we're facing. You know, the fact that I, I wanted to work with young people and people to, you know, help release their potential. And I realized this wasn't logical because our world was, you know, dying and being killed, arguably. Um, well, manifestly. Um, it came along to me, but I don't think we'd seen, you know, Greenpeace. I'd subscribed to some charities and, and done. I'd been on I'd been on a march in 2008, I think it was, um, that hadn't even made the news. It was a huge march, you know. And the case that Extinction Rebellion was making is that all the things that have come before it and respecting Greenpeace and all these other organisations, they've tried what they could with their model, their kind of theory of change, Um it hadn't worked to turn, you know, to bend that carbon emissions graph down. It hadn't turned, hadn't worked to, you know, massively reduce the species loss that's happening, you know. So those organisations are important part of things, but actually they haven't worked, you know, just as petitions and voting for, you know, in our systems haven't worked, just as lobbying has not really worked in all this time. So Extinction Rebellion was kind of saying, you know, telling the truth. You know enough really we've we've tried these things haven't worked we need to do something different we're at that level now um and there are i think in the us you know 350 i get emails from them there is there are different organizations out there but i'd say certainly from my perspective here xr has been the biggest uh, organization to have the biggest thing fridays for future i think has a huge influence you know i don't know where quite where it's at now it's probably you know building itself but there's a huge power there but I think XR was kind of saying, actually, you know, telling the truth, these things haven't worked. We need to do something different and it needs to be stepping up. So, yeah, I looked at it and I was, yeah, I'm not, not disrespecting those organizations. They all have a part to play in this kind of ecosystem. But if you have this understanding of the urgency, the time for, you know, kind of more gentle methods um, is kind of over and the, the time for just giving 10 pounds a month to a company who's you know sorry an ngo that's a freudian slip <laughs> to an end to, to a you know to an organization that's going to take care of this for you that's not going to work those things haven't worked for for far too long you know it now needs ordinary people to take action themselves and so that was very compelling to me and that that seems anecdotally true and it seems to be true to me because i think xr since XR came along, since Fridays for Future came along, there has been a massive change in the public space and much more pressure and scrutiny and accountability applied to, well, scrutiny, not yet accountability to our government since these things that, you know, I, I think that ramped up massively since we've been around and before it had been pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and now we, we're having to really push. And this is, um, you talk... You talk about um, the problems, and it seems climate being the main one, but you also talk about species and uh, people being displaced from the land. And there's so many issues. Uh, what's the balance between, not so many issues, so many threats to um, uh, Earth's ability to sustain life? What's the ratio of an extinction rebellion of climate versus everything else? I mean, I think, I think you know, uh, we have a, a, a target, an eye on climate and ecological emergency. You know, these are two things, but one is a bit more hidden, I guess, in the public discourse, the eco, you know, the nature. But I think people kind of know that 
we are destroying nature in a way that's completely insane. And um, I would sort of suggest that in people's eyes, I see things written, you know, climate this and climate that. Very often it's environmental. It means, you know, they're talking, they've got concerns about the future of our planet and what we're doing to it. So, you know, we have carbon dioxide emissions, hugely important. These things are going to send us over the balance, you know, send us over 1.5 degrees, perhaps over past tipping points. But we cannot take our eyes off the ball off, yeah, the fact that we are destroying our ecosystems in a way that's completely you know, again, completely insane. So I wouldn't say that, yeah, I'd say that at the moment in Extinction Rebellion UK, we have an immediate demand, which is to demand our our government ends new fossil fuel investments, ends fossil fuel subsidies and grants no new fossil fuel licenses. So at the moment this year, we're like got a bit of an eye on, on fossil fuels. But you could say, first of all, fossil fuel industry is not just about carbon emissions, it's about environmental degradation and about the whole you know, system that it drives kind of fuels and, and, and supports destruction, you know, all these destructive industries, all these destructive um, methods that make our life, make our earth less, less, less habitable. So you've got to start somewhere, but I think it's always recognizing this idea of, you know, this kind of zoomed out picture. And these things are very much entwined as well. And I think they all go through, it is a crisis of democracy and it's a crisis of our, you know, um, political and economic system that prevent us from, you know, that are, are locked us in on this course. And so many things go through this and you, you can very quickly find yourself thinking about structural racism. Uh, you can find yourself about, you know, speciesism, you know, di- you know, that we are very human centric, you know, thinking. And it's just kind of gets you thinking about these things and starting to think, well, actually, you know, we are, there's all these things that kind of all tangled up together. And fundamentally, the the thing that they hold in common is thoughts about, I guess, ideas about extraction, you know, um, exploitation, and then oppression and things like that. They all kind of get a bit together. But we do tend to say, well, I suppose in my mind, all of these problems, um, we know, well, I I suppose if if we burst through our you know, if we, if we create, go past these tipping points, most likely the most potential way that will really affect people in the global north in the UK will be that our food systems collapse. Um, we're already seeing strain on the food systems because of the war in Ukraine and droughts in other parts of the world. You know, when our food system comes under strain, you get massive problems, you know, massive social upheaval. And in times of social upheaval, you'll get like the 10 turning to the right, you know, fascism, and you get like, you know, the drawbridge comes up, who you're going to look after, who is not worth looking after, who is to blame for this. And you get all sorts of fairly nasty, you know, solutions uh, in inverted commas coming out of that, which I find, you know, horrifying. That's actually what scares me, you know, in my country, we're going to have floods and we're going to have areas of our country, you know, perhaps even my house (laughs) is going to become very vulnerable to flooding. Um, but what's really going to mess us up is going to be, you know, the lack of resilience we have in our food systems and then probably our all our other systems, energy, infrastructure, all those things will come under massive strain as well. But the, the social problems that it will create will make potentially our society even very, very grim and dangerous for people. But we're, at the same time, we have the flip side is that we actually have the chance to change this to being a more 
ecologically sensible way of doing things but at the same time that creates a healthier society mentally physically a society that's under less pressure a society that has you know better food better living for many people actually in this in the global north and in the global south um where you have a a future that is actually um it's very different but it's not the one that we're headed towards now, which is where we have collapsed our, our civilization. So I think there's a great potential to do something different, but we've got to really see that this is that systemic level thing. We're not going to manage this by all getting electric cars. It's just not going to work like that. We have to, we have to create structural changes to our, the way we're set up to our democracy and to the way our economies are set up. Is the target when I, th- I feel like extinction rebellions main way of working is through Get, well, nonviolent civil, civil disobedience is, the, and I, I read that the main target is government to change government. The, it could be corporations, it could be the people. What's the ratio there between who, whom you want to change and how? Is yeah, it okay. all government or? No, it's a good question. So I think the, um, and I will come back actually, once I've answered this question, I'll make I'll say another few things about our methods. I think that's really important. So I think in this world that we're mostly in, you know, is run, it seems to be run by corporations, right? They they produce stuff and they like get everything, you know, they're transnational, multinational companies. Um, and it's these corporations that are that are using our resources and giving them to us in the sorts of forms of things that we are told that we want or that we, you know, we, we're kind of advertised into thinking that we want to have them. These corporations really are the, you know, they they have built into them this kind of um, this profit motive, isn't it? Really, they have to they have to create shareholder value. That's what their board of directors, you know, that's what the people in charge of them are, are trying to do is to create profit for their shareholders, to create added values for their shareholders. But that again, in our in this kind of neoliberal this free market economic system that we have. Um, it, it, the, the theory behind that is that governments just have to stand back and let them do that because the market, if it's free, will kind of adjust and find its way to efficient ways of doing things, which I guess you know kind of works in some ways, but not when you've got finite resources. So I suppose we are Extinction Rebellion to me is targeting. Um, you know, we have an eye that these corporations are doing this, but it's our governments that can control them. You know, our governments say they can't, but they, they can. It's just they choose not to in their kind of ideological way of thinking. Um, we Again, we saw in COVID, you know, the airline industry, the aviation industry was just shut down overnight and they kind of worked it out. And other industries were left to support themselves. Others struggled really badly. And, and that means in the end, ordinary, you know, the people working for them really struggle and suffer so that's what we're saying, and that's why we need a citizens' assembly is to kind of create this transition where nobody's thrown under the bus. You know, in this country, we have people working in the steel industry. We have people working in all sorts of different areas that if we're going to survive on this planet, they need to be rapidly brought down, brought into control to within the planetary boundaries, to, you know, that mean we won't destroy ourselves. That doesn't mean just throwing them people away. It means, you know, retraining them, finding new jobs, finding new ways of doing things for them so that's really really important and so yeah i think it's worth saying that the yeah this idea we've got to get the government 
we're using we're getting our government to do its job which is to protect us which is you know to protect us from these corporations which their behavior could be described as as predatory and we're also asking our government in the uk you know we are a small country but we have you know they sometimes say we've got only one percent of emissions but that's not true because a lot of our emissions are, are, are offshored to other countries where our stuff is produced also our financial institutions the city of london um is uh has control of of, of assets that produce 15 percent of the world's carbon um carbon dioxide so our government does have access to levers it also has its kind of soft power political capital you know whatever what happens in this country does matter we're in the process i think you know some might say of make diminishing ourselves in the eyes of some some countries and perhaps other countries would, would not look on us at all kindly but we do have influence in in the world and if we could take a leadership position and put enact policies that are in the interest of everybody on this earth. I think it would provide a good example. So I believe, you know, getting our government to pull its levers and getting our government to pull its levers internationally and, and also, you know, nationally in, in our country is the most effective thing. And that would bring, in theory, you know, these corporations, they would, they, you know, we do have the laws to control them, I believe. So I hope that kind of makes sense. And it's all right, Josh, can I just say one thing a little bit more about nonviolent disobedience? I think it's yes. really good to say. So, yeah, so the methods that we use uh, are called nonviolent civil disobedience or peaceful civil disobedience. And people can look this up. There's a long history of this. But one of the things about it is that it's morally, you know, correct. Some people say, you know, to not hurt people, not hurt, you know, things that are alive and, you know, uh, and... Other people also say that nonviolence is also effective, more effective, because violent struggles, you know, violent um, violent organisations very often rely on a much smaller number of people. Very often it's like youngish men who are, you know, who are able to do these kind of violent behaviours. And, and, you know, I'm not saying in some parts of the world people have suffered so much violence, they feel that's the only route open to them. But nonviolence allows more people to participate, young people, old people, women, um, people from groups who sometimes might not be able to, you know, participate in other forms of, of action. Um, nonviolence is inclusive and it's also very powerful because it calls to people. It shows, you know, people when they've got discipline and they're prepared to sacrifice something for their for their cause it very often makes people, gives people pause for thought and makes people wonder. And I think one of the really interesting things about Extinction Rebellion is this, uh, and, and, and nonviolent disobedience, is this idea of a dilemma action. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but a dilemma, it's sometimes called political jujitsu. And jujitsu is about kind of redirecting your opponent's energy to kind of work against them, you know, to for them to kind of backfire on themselves. So... Um, this is one of the most appealing ideas for me um, of, of what we're doing. So nonviolence um, basically means you go out and you do something that is disobedient. You know, it's outrageous. It causes some, some, you know, some consternation or, you know, it causes some fuss, let's call that. You know, I don't know if you use that word in, the, in America, yes. a bit of fuss, a little fuss in the old English. Mustn't fuss. Yeah. Yes. So it causes a bit of fuss. Yeah. But then the authorities or whoever is dealing with this fuss has a dilemma. They basically have a dilemma. They either um, come in and try to stop this fuss from happening. And in the process, they risk either 
drawing attention to the fuss because all of a sudden, you know, you have the police cars wailing coming in or it's on the news or whatever like that. And it causes, brings spotlight onto this, which is great for the people who are doing this non-violence because it gives them a chance to speak about what they're doing. The other thing that you can also happen is that the government, the other side is, um, is that they can come in, but they can come in heavy handedly um, and, you know, trample on the peaceful and nice people, peaceful protesters and Olympians with their police horses or water cannons and ordinary people watching this on the news will be outraged and think, you know, what sort of country we're we living in? This is outrageous. Our government is, you know, doing behaving in this completely out of, out of order way and you create support and attention in that mechanism as well. So that's the kind of one side of the dilemma. And so this is very scary for authorities because they don't want to draw attention and they don't want to overreach and create more support for the cause that they're trying to kind of suppress and switch off. But then the other side of the dilemma is, well, they can sort of say, well, actually, you know, we'll try and they just ignore them and wait them out, you know, and hopefully they'll just go away. They'll become disorganized or they'll their discipline will break or they'll just lose interest and energy and we'll just ignore them. But then that in effect gives permission or the, you know, the protesters, you know, the people doing the disobedience go actually, well, you know, they're not, they're not paying, you know, they're not, they're not shutting us down. So we're going to push it up to another level. We're going to be more, cause more of a fuss. And again, it's always within this kind of boundaries of, of nonviolence for, for what we're doing. Um, but means, you know, you, you have a kind of win-win situation um, if you maintain your peaceful uh, discipline. And that's obviously a very important thing, but, you know, we do lots of work around this. It's a fundamental principle of Extinction Rebellion. You've got to be peaceful. We, we work hard at de-escalation, which is, you know, managing situations where the energy could become violent. We work hard um, at um, making sure the police understand, you know, kind of who they're dealing with and that it is a peaceful protest, you know, these methods um, and it's really powerful because it means that in a way we win either way. They either shut us down and draw attention to us um, and overreach in the process, or they let us get on with it and we push it a bit higher. And as you can see, I don't know if again people might follow UK politics uh, who are listening. Recently, our government has enacted really what I would say are authoritarian, draconian penalties for well they're heading towards this way with with peaceful protests designed specifically to shut groups like extinction rebellion down or to deny them of these methods um and that kind of shows that in a way you're being effective because when they're fearing our power they're seeing that we've got a method that works that can exert pressure that can build attention and demand you know kind of thought from people and they're trying to stop us from doing that and again it kind of shows that there is this dilemma because I'm not sure that people in this country really want to live in a country where you can just get put in prison for doing something very minor, like standing in a road and protesting about the future of your family and your and of the entire human race. It doesn't make sense to people. Do you know what I mean? So it causes a dilemma. And that's the thing about peaceful disobedience. It, it, it provokes thought. Very often people say, oh, you know, it makes people angry and turns people off your cause. But the idea, and there's some evidence to bear this out, is that it It basically, people might be angry, you know, and they've been stuck in their car in a traffic jam, perhaps, or, you know, they've just not been able to get to work on time. And, you know, that this is a real impact. And I take no pleasure in that at all. But later on, very often people kind of go, mm, actually, yeah, they've got a point. Or actually, you know, I think they're, they're I think they're, 
they're doing something that's right here. I don't agree with what they're, you know, the way they're doing it, but they're, what they're doing is fundamentally, you know, a just cause. So the thing is, if you don't do something disruptive, something that doesn't cause a fuss, the issue that was hidden, the issue remains hidden. It's only like that by causing a fuss around an issue that you bring it into the public eye and that people are then forced to adopt an opinion. And then once they adopt an opinion, they um, then they can this, this discussion can happen. So, for example, recently we had something in, in Britain called Insulate Britain, which was a very controversial campaign of people disrupting um, major roads in the UK around London, the M25, which is the circular ring road around London. It caused a huge amount of disruption, a lot of anger. But their question, their demand was simple. We want to, in, they wanted to insulate the social, they wanted the government to insulate social housing, which is the pound for pound, the cheapest, the most effective way of reducing the carbon footprint of, of our housing stock, which is very inefficient. And it caused a lot of controversy. It was a hugely, you know, divisive, even amongst the Extinction Rebellion. You know, people were like, oh, this is a really bad idea. This is going to alienate a lot of people. A lot of people like could see maybe it working, whatever. But now, six months later, um, it's really clear that people have been talking about insulation because our recent go our government recently announced an energy policy, and it was very clear that there was a gap there where insulation, home insulation, should have been a big program of retrofitting houses. The government chose not to do that, but because this campaign forced this issue into into the public eye. People have now thought about it, and very few people down the pub will say we shouldn't we shouldn't insulate people's houses. That's a really stupid idea, you know. It causes a kind of discussion to happen, dislocated, you know, through time. It's quite a little while later, but I actually believe that, you know, that method really kind of forced something into consciousness. And and, and Martin Luther King was very clear when he was doing this in the civil rights movement. He said, you know, to most people at the time, everything seemed peaceful. It seemed calm. But actually, there was this massive unjust, injustice happening all around. You know, the racial injustice was kind of hidden. And their method kind of bring it, brought it to the fore, made it like, you've got to think about this guy. You've got to think about this. You've got to, you're confronted with it. And then people have got to adopt a position. And then people adopt a position and they discuss it. And then progress is made rather than it remaining hidden. So peaceful disobedience methods work. There's a whole theory, there's a whole body of research about why, you know, these methods work. And to me, it's very compelling as well. You know, and again, I would much rather just be like writing to my MP or, or doing things like that. But actually, we've left it too late. And so these methods now seem to be, you know, kind of justified and, and appropriate and evidence backed to the, to the extent that they seem to be, you know, they're no guarantees, but they seem to be a very effective way in history of creating the sort of changes that we're after. So few, another long bit, but hopefully well, that was covered we talked about mission and strategy and got into tactics as well. And I want to ask you about your personal experience and what it's, what it's actually like. We only have a couple of minutes. Uh, and maybe yeah, instead quick. of starting on that, maybe you'll come back for another episode if you're game for talking about that. And I'd love to get your impressions on what I'm doing also from, the, from another person's perspective. If someone's listened all the way through, though, they're, they're almost certainly genuinely interested. Let's close with, what if someone wants to, probably most of my listeners are in the US, but what if they want to get involved with Extinction Rebellion or find out more besides listening to our next episode? Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to do that, Josh. It'd be really cool to, uh, to tell people because I think that's really interesting. Um, the, the best thing to do is to look up online. And in, in the UK, our website is rebellion.earth and it has lots of information on there. 
you know, fundamentally, I always ask people, I say, you don't even have to look up Extinction Rebellion. What you need to do is to understand where we're at, what the problem is. Now look at where we are and now look at the difference between where we are and what needs to be done. And then and then figure out what can you what can bridge that gap in the time that we have available. And then you might explore, you know, um, you know, an organization like Extinction Rebellion. So I would say, yeah, get online, do some research about Extinction Rebellion, do some research about peaceful civil disobedience. There's lots of stuff out there. I'm also going to quickly big up something which I'm super into at the moment, which is degrowth, which is kind of like the kind of economic model that could get us out of this mess. And Jason Hickel from the US is a very interesting person talking about degrowth. So I get people to re- listen to that just because I'm super interested in that right now as well. And it's really powerful. I want to keep going, but we have to stop. Yes. And uh, is, you'll come back again to... to... Sure. Okay, great. Well, uh, Etienne, thank you very much. And I, I have more of an ending, but we're just this is just a pause. <laughs> All right, man. See you soon. And thanks, everyone, for listening so far. Talk to you again soon.